From the north, citizens of Earth, welcome. Today at Forum Borealis, we return to one of our original series called From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. It is one of those series where the episodes ought to be arranged chronologically, meaning that they should be assorted thematically rather than by release date to get the complete picture. Long-time listeners know that we are unraveling a huge thread weaved throughout millennia. From ancient times, that's Solomon's Temple, through Vikings, Templars, Renaissance Mysteries, Rosicrucians, the Shakespeare Project, Freemasons and the New World, that's Arcadia 2.0, and even up to today. Where Oak Island is one of, but not the only, hotspots. Previously in this series, you've heard from great researchers such as Peter Amundsen, Daniel Ronstam, Scott Walter, Diana Muir, Timothy Hogan and others. And some of these will certainly return, but it's high time to bring in fresh blood. And I have in mind to get on many superb researchers from a great cachet of them out there to elaborate on different portions of this timeline and different fascinating details and mysterious detours which it indeed contains. Just recently we put out a poll for our donating subscribers to see which subject matter they prefer It was quite a wake-up call for me, because lo and behold, the winning subject was defined as mysteries, occult, magic, Templars, Masons, Rosicrucians, Gnostics, which this series is a pure epitome of. And I promised that the three most popular categories will be pursued with overwhelming priority by us during the year of the Lord 2023. So although this show was recorded in December 22, it's a good omen, as it fits hand in glove with our current priorities, as determined by our producers, which is all of you who throw us a coin, especially a Bitcoin. Tonight's episode is called New Atlantis, the Templar Project in Oak Island. And as you will hear for yourself, this is not a hyperbolic overstatement, but rather a sober description. But before I go on, check this out. You know, speaking of Templar, there is another, and I I think a rather elegant theory, and I think we've all were impressed by James McQuiston's work. There is a possible Templar connection there. The team first heard this theory from author and Society of Antiquaries of Scotland fellow James McQuiston in 2018. I want to start out with the story of King James I of England, who also happened to be King James VI of Scotland. They wanted to oust the French Catholics living at Port Royal. So he went to his good friend, Sir William Alexander, who was on the Privy Council and he held various positions in government. And he said, can you get some of our fellow Scotsmen to go over there? And he said, well, you've got a New England, you've got a New France, and you've got a New Spain. If you give me a New Scotland, I'll do it. So a new knighthood was developed. It's called the Knights Baronet. In 2019, author and historian James McQuiston met with members of the fellowship 
to explain who he believed may have left those items on Oak Island. So here's the theory in a nutshell. The followers of a group of Scottish knights created by William Alexander settled in Nova Scotia during the early 1600s. And this is historic fact. In 1625, the Scottish Order of the Knights Baronet began a settlement in Nova Scotia, or New Scotland. Founded by Sir William Alexander, a Scottish royal advisor to King James I of England, the organization's mission was to establish a refuge for Templar descendants in the New World. However, in 1632, they were expelled when France conquered the region. Unfortunately, the French attacked Nova Scotia, leaving the Scots ousted in the spring of 1632 and were able to sail directly across the North Atlantic back to Great Britain due to the bad spring weather. And I believe they took shelter in Mahone Bay, which would have been the best place to take shelter. And Oak Island is at the back of them, so it would be the perfect place to hide back there and bury what they couldn't take back with them or didn't want to take back with them. I mean, that is a fascinating organization, the Knights Baronet, descendants of the Templars. And when you, when you factor in Masonic connections, I mean, that's a secret society, right? So what do they have? Secret knowledge. So is that where you're going? The Templars bury a treasure here. The descendants know about it. They come here to build a new society and, and, and maybe access it. Yeah, exactly, mate. Uh, this is not just treasure that's been handed down and added to through the generations. This is knowledge. Mm. And they would have known to come here. It's a place where they can bury treasure and leave it for future generations. You believe now, based on all your discoveries, that there have been generational activities here on Oak Island. Do you still stand by that? Yeah, I do, mate. You've got to look at the finds. I like a lot of the theories, especially James McQuiston's theories. Right. They go with this timeline. Welcome to Oak Island. Thank you. I just want to uh, introduce uh, James McQuiston to you. It's a very unique James. take on the Oak Island mystery. McQuiston's research into the North American descendants of the Knights Templar convinced him that the Order of Warrior Monks left a vast treasure on Oak Island as far back as the 14th century, and that their descendants continued to deposit riches there over the course of the next 400 years. In order to persuade Scottish clan chiefs to leave Scotland and colonize what would become Nova Scotia, in 1625, King James I began offering titles and land to them and their descendants in exchange for 3,000 marks, or around 50,000 US dollars today. The idea was to sell about 100 of these to create 100 towns around Nova Scotia. That was the ultimate plan. And it's more than apparent that uh, the Scottish clan leaders who became the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia had a lot of links back to the Knights Templar. And they stayed on Oak Island? If, in fact, they came into Mahone Bay and parked at Oak Island, certainly enough time to build the money pit. Exactly. The other item of great interest on, on this is back then, title deeds were kept in canvas wax bags to protect the India ink. So, as you know, in 1897, a little piece of parchment was pulled up from uh, the money pit at about 150 feet down. Here it is. Mm -hmm. Guess what? No smearing of the India ink. So what that would tell me is that this was kept in something that was waterproof until that drill bit hit it and brought it up to the surface. You know, th theorists have come and gone here. What separates the real theories, generally those theories have to connect the dots. 
James has come, he connects one fact with another fact, and I am thoroughly impressed. I'm glad James McQuiston's name has come up because his work is very exciting when it comes to possibly tying Freemasons to this whole thing. So yes. there he is. Hello, James. Welcome back. Happy to Welcome be here. Back. James, what first captured your imagination about Oak Island? Well, in 1621, the Knights Baronet were given Nova Scotia partly to protect the Plymouth colony. It is a complex subject, but essentially it's the Knights Baronet had connections backwards to the Knights Templar and forwards to the Freemasons. And so there's just too much to ignore, too many coincidences. It was the first theory that actually tied a treasure to the story of Oak Island that included components of what was found over the years. Well, but not only that, the historical data to, the, to show that people were in the area that were capable of creating the money pit and depositing a treasure, because they had a treasure that was worth depositing. Yes, for sure. The Knights Baronet were founded in 1611, and given the mission to establish a settlement across the Atlantic in New Scotland. But what makes this of high interest to James McQuiston is that the Knights Baronet were not only Freemasons, but also descendants of the Knights Templar. Based on his research, James believes that Nova Scotia was chosen due to the secret knowledge of an existing Templar vault that had been created centuries earlier on Oak Island. And in 1632, when France reclaimed control of Nova Scotia, forcing the Knights Baronet to flee, James believes that they made a secret journey to Oak Island, accessed the money pit, and hid some of their own treasures to keep them out of the hands of their enemy. A treaty was signed between England and France, and King Charles gave Nova Scotia back to the French. That meant they had to leave in 1632, so I believe that's the year, and approximately April, May, June, in that area when they deposited some of that treasure there in the money pit. They possibly deposited some Knights Templar treasure, these same men had really nice access to Mahone Bay in Nova Scotia and that they were in this area and could have at, at least deposited something on Oak Island. Yes. You know, it's funny, we, we were just at the swamp talking about those dates and some of them, like the paved area, go way back before, which I think you could make a connection if you really talk about secret knowledge being handed down, but I don't even think we have to do that because you can go right to the money pit. Some of the dates you found this season, in fact, fit right in James's research. Can yes. you guys kind of elaborate on that? The dates in the money pit are now falling in line with the dates in the swamp so that the two areas of the island could well be connected. And that, indeed, I think they probably are. Wow. It is pretty stunning that the team found a Mason's T-square one year ago in the swamp, which dated to 1632, the exact year that the Knights Baronet are believed to have visited Oak Island. Given that the dates of the possible tunnels in the money pit and the Mason's T-square from the swamp line up with the historical period that the Knights Baronet were in Nova Scotia, if Zena Halpern was correct that the Templars first visited Oak Island back in the 12th century, I have to say, James's theory that their Freemason descendants came back in the 17th century is a compelling possibility. 
But there were three reasons why I think they couldn't come back and get that treasure. And the simplest one was that France took over Nova Scotia. So you're not going to be out there digging up your treasure with the French looking over your shoulder ready to steal it. Then the Civil War. It started in Scotland, came down to Ireland, came over to England, and everything fell apart and Oliver Cromwell took over. So. There was just one thing after another that prevented them from coming back. Yeah, well, when you talk about that, the, the people who actually worked on this search being Masons and the people who were here that were Masons, I mean, that's got to mean something to you, too, in your research. Frederick Blair was a Freemason. In 1897, Blair actually drilled down and recovered not only a bit of gold, but a bit of parchment from the same location around H8 that we recovered parchment. Right. I mean, you have to consider all the possible suspects and the symbology that we see here in items on the island and in the money pit demand that you look at the Freemasons. Well, so where does, where does James and Kristen's theory stand with you guys? I mean, it's, it's, it's the story of a formation of a new Scotland and a stolen treasure and now maybe ties to the pilgrims. James lays out a very concrete evidentiary path, elegant theory yeah. to, to Marty's point when he talked about the American Revolution. One of the more compelling and historically based theories that Rick, Marty, Craig, and the team have considered is one centering on the Knights Baronet, a group of Scottish knights who re-established French Acadia as New Scotland in 1625. And what made it really interesting was that members of this organization were not only Freemasons, but were also descendants of the Knights Templar. The first seven members of the Masonic Order were Knights Baronet. Hmm. The Masonic Order, as we know, there's some Templar influence in that order. So there's that possible connection, and he's traced the lineages of these families backwards and forwards, but his most recent additions to his ever-evolving theory is the connection to the Plymouth Colony. Yeah, the names are amazing. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, I know all those names. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. This season, James McQuiston's theory became even more compelling and even more rooted in documented history when he made new potential connections to the pilgrims who sailed to North America aboard the Mayflower in 1621, with research suggesting that some of these folks may have added treasure to the already established Templar vault on Oak Island. And these three groups have one thing in common besides Oak Island, and that is a connection to Sir William Alexander, the founder of Nova Scotia. It was the people from Plymouth who petitioned the King of Great Britain to give the French colony of Acadia to Alexander, because they feared an attack by the French forces. So the Plymouth colony settlement was directly responsible for Nova Scotia being established by William Alexander. So years later, the Freemasons, the Knights Baronet, and the families from the Plymouth Colony descended on Oak Island as landowners and treasure hunters. Several of the most famous searchers for treasure on Oak Island came out of the Plymouth Colony legacy and some landowners as well. First, we have Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his grandfather, Warren Delano Jr. Well, what I discovered is that Warren Delano Jr. descended from three Plymouth Colony men, and Franklin Roosevelt descended from at least four. Well, how about that? The names are stunning. There's the Delano family. <laughs> FDR, Delano. right? Yes. There's Vaughn's. Wait, Vaughn's one of the yeah. exactly. founders of the Money Pit, supposedly, and he's related to the Mayflower? Mm-hmm. 
That's and, it, and there's, no, and there's, there's more, way, than there's that. more than that. There's, there's more than that. It really is quite amazing. He laid them out one by wow. one. So interesting. It's such a fascinating theory, especially now with this new wrinkle to the pilgrims. Yes. When you ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how, I think James, above all the others, really deals with that. He yeah. just can't put X on the ground. I can tell you what, James is not giving up. Yeah, I, I believe that. <laughs> James just said that same thing about Rick. Rick <laughs> McGee is not giving up. Now, that was obviously clips from the popular History Channel show called The Curse of Oak Island. And all of us who have followed it from day one have seen how it has beautifully developed, forced by the evidence, to evolve from cowboys invading a pirate treasure island to drill for gold doubloons to idealistic and humble seekers of truth, to uncover a great mystery of history and religion. Indeed, not only are chances that some of the Templar treasures are buried there, uh, at least fragments of some of the deposits, most likely there were several of those, but most importantly, at least to the Templars, there's treasures in terms of unique artifacts, such as the Golden Menorah, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy Grail, whatever that really is, although they may have been removed by now. And as outrageous and random as it sounds, even a dead body, most likely Francis Bacon's, and the original Shakespearean manuscripts, which, when you know the rationale behind it, not just makes it logical, but downright plausible. Is any of this stuff still there, and can it be uncovered? Well, isn't that the main incentive to watch the TV series? But let's rewind and zoom in on a particular part of the timeline today, namely the missing link between the crushed yet surviving Templars of the late 1500s and the transforming years of the early 1600s, which ushered in Rosicrucians and Freemasons and the colonization of Nova Scotia. And to help us with this, we have an outstanding primary researcher, a real treasure in himself, who has uncovered plenty new factoids, some of history-shattering nature, that fits like bricks in a wall of this grand story. Namely, historian and genealogist James Arthur McQuiston, a well-known name for those who watch the TV series, as his research has been presented several times on the show, and his theory rated a second out of the top Ten. Hailing from Pennsylvania, but descending from famous clans and kin like MacDonald's, Bruce, Gunn, Stuart, Somerled, Conn, including a relation to President Andrew Jackson and another to Captain Jack McWeston, the only man ever to be called father of Alaska and of the Yukon. And also in his family was Tom McQuiston, who built the Rainbow Bridge at Niagara Falls, joining Canada and the U.S., Naturally, his family often discussed their Scottish-Irish heritage, which became a part of his life from childhood. Then, his youthful love of the heroic novels of Stevenson, London, Dumas and the like triggered studies of his own lineage, leading to studies of other family histories and of the history of the Celts in general. 
and incredible extensive historic and genealogical research throughout the years, with innumerable books and articles published. McQuiston is the author of several hidden history books, as well as a whole host of other genealogical and historically themed books, but since 16 has focused intently on Oak Island. He's written for many periodicals and magazines like the Highlander magazine, the Scotch-Irish Society newsletter, the Archaeology and Metal Detecting magazine, Celtic Life International, SeekingMyRoots.com, Celtic Guide magazine, which is a forum for authors and artists he founded in 12 as a depository for Celtic-related stories and music, and his own blog at themountainecho.blogspot.com, as well as his genealogy site, jimmequiston.com. He was co-founder of Clan, I'm going to butcher his name now, Uistin, USA, to preserve the kin's history, artifacts and cemeteries, where he served as president for six years and as historian for 15 years. Due to his outstanding work, in 14 he was honoured as a fellow in the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, established in 1780, which works hand-in-hand with the Scottish National Museums, British Museum, UK National Archives and other historical organisations. Other credentials include membership in several additional historical organisations like Irish Cultural Society of Pennsylvania, Area Genealogical Society, Friends of Red Harlow in Scotland, which he helped form, and a four-year graduate from the Fellowships of the Spirit School with additional eight years of periodic classes. In his day job, he spent 43 years in the print and publishing field, managing and or owning print shops and weekly newspapers. The most recent before his retirement was nine years as color manager and Photoshop director for a clothing catalog company processing tens of thousands of fashion photographs. He's a man of many hats and is also an experienced folk musician. Growing up attending Irish music sessions at his uncle's farm, the elders would play from 10 in the morning, sometimes until 4 a.m. the next morning. He continued to perform Celtic music live with his wife as the duo Celtic Creek, having played many hundreds of times on stage or at sessions, including at Murphy's Pub in Dungiven, Northern Ireland, where there has been continuous Celtic music every week for over 40 years. Celtic Creek regularly gave around 10 performances in the day surrounding St. Patrick's Day. Beyond all this, he is an avid traveller, having been to Scotland many times and met with Lord MacDonald and studied at the MacDonald Centre of the Isle of Skye with clan archivists and historians and trekked nearly every corner of that country as well as Ireland and Northern Ireland like the ancestral hill of Tara, climbing the giant's causeway and Tor Head, exploring many mystical and magical ruins from Dublin to Belfast. His journeys has also included Yukon and Alaska as well as Cape Breton and of course Nova Scotia. Like so many others, James McQuiston read the Reader's Digest article on Oak Island in 65 and was fascinated with its mystery. But his personal involvement with it wasn't until 16 when he realized from genealogy studies that his extended family's title of Premier Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia might have something to do with the Oak Island story. 
He sent a small amount of information to them, which was met by requests for further research, as it kept piling up with new findings. Along the way it was suggested that he write a book to compile it, which continued and led to another, and so on. To date he has written 10 regarding the Oak Island subject, and continued tirelessly investigating old documents and books having worked with a multitude of historical institutions and sources like the National Archives of the UK, British Museum, the Scottish National Records, National Museum of Scotland, the Nova Scotia Archives, College of Geographic Sciences, Royal Nova Scotia Historical Society, the Grand Historian of the Grand Lodges of Nova Scotia, the Principal Keeper of Arms for the UK, plus many early Oak Island theorists and the current Oak Island search team. He has identified the names of three significant men being carved on the famous 90-foot stone and revealed the hidden history of how such men, descended from Knights Templar, were involved with the settlement of Nova Scotia in the early 1600s, as well as in the very establishment of Freemasonry, working together in a conspiracy of sorts to create a utopia in North America, and seem to have left behind treasures documents and carved stones while making a quick exit under a treaty between Britain and France. Since 18, Jim has appeared in 13 segments of the TV show and is currently working on a new book uncovering even more amazing facts entitled Oak Island, a Masonic Conspiracy. His previous publications stand on their own and present a look at his theory from several never-before-explored angles and can be found at his website oakislandgold.com. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Jim. Hi, Al. This is really great to be here today. Pretty excited about it. Oh, I'm also very excited about this. Uh, I've had a passion, as uh, you understood from our pre-talk here, for this story, this mystery, this incredible part of history. For many, many years, I've had a few Oak Island researchers. Uh, with that, I mean also researchers who's been on the TV series Oak Island, mm-hmm. uh, and even more who hasn't been, uh, but who have digged into uh, similar aspects of this story on my show. And uh, I'm going to have uh, more on in the future. But you, you were a must. Because every time I saw you on the show, I was thinking to myself, damn, I need this. I need to talk with this guy. <laughs> and uh, before we even say anything else, how many times did they invite you to the TV series? Well, I've been going up since 2017. Uh, I missed 2020 because of COVID and I did a Zoom but I actually snuck up there in 2021 past the COVID police. So I've been in a total of um, six in-person war room meetings and two Zoom meetings when we couldn't get, when we couldn't connect in person. So eight, eight episodes total. Well, uh, they've used pieces of it in, I think, 13 episodes by now. Mm. But, you know, they, they film for two hours and then they use, when they need this 10 minutes of footage they use it in that show and then they might use it in another show so about uh, 13 times that are unique to the show or to my being filmed i think i was filmed for 
about 22 hours total. Uh, if I, you know, it, it actually kind of becomes the fog in the beginning. I knew every single minute, you know, but yeah. it becomes the fog after a while. But, uh, and when you get up there, your, your mind isn't on those kinds of things. It's like, wow, I can't believe I'm here and they've got mm. for you to do. I mean, Charles takes me on uh, tours of the island every time I've been up there. Um, it's kind of neat because I see things that I can't talk about because it's NDA, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I get to see them and then it helps me with, as long as I don't repeat them verbatim, it helps me with my book. And uh, mm. so they've been, they've been really great people and uh, they've given me a lot of accolades. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. Imagine I, I, r- right now, as we are talking and this is uh, December 22, <clears throat> we're at a very, exciting part of the story of course it's delayed this they did earlier this year but they're starting to dig tunnels actual mines oh my god that's the best i don't know why they didn't do it from the outset because it's better in terms of preserving whatever now i'm talking strictly about the money pit here Uh, in this show we are just as much if not more interested in other spots there Notwithstanding, outside of Oak Island, because this isn't limited to Oak Island, but the point is, imagine in the future when they invite you back and you can actually tour those uh, new <laughs> caves, mines that they're making. That must be quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd hope they would let me down it and crawl through it. But, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the been to the money pit every time I'm there, but quite often there's not a lot going on. And I was there when they were... Mm. I'd have to say they've been doing due diligence probably beyond what a normal person's patience would be because like at that one year, they drilled like 40 test holes Mm. uh, to try to see what they would come up with. And it did kind of zero them in a little bit, but most of those holes didn't turn up anything. So, you know, you got to think, well, how's their, how do they keep their spirit right? You know, when Mm. the majority of what they do, truthfully, the majority of what they do, doesn't give them anything other than the information that something's not there you know but what it does is it leads down to uh to bring it more into focus but yeah i've wondered that especially about that garden pit uh when they first showed that in 2017 i think or 18 why they didn't just start digging right there and you know go down as far as they could but i don't know and i and i i don't speak for the Oak Island team or Prometheus. So I don't, I can't explain that a lot of the choices that they make, uh, but I'm just happy that some of those choices involve me. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, no, uh, but uh, when they are so determined as they are, um, and when it's such a hard task as Oak Island is, I think the elimination method, uh, I mean, even when they can find out, okay, it's not this. Every bit helps, you know, it, because they already know there's something going on. So they have enough about that. So then yep. they have to do it the hard way. They have to go around the barn to get to the center of the mystery because, okay, so it's not this, it's not here, it's not that. And uh, eventually it has to yield. It has to yield. And I'm pretty convinced they will let you into the cave for the simple reason that parallel with the digging of the you know the the 
I guess it's Marty, especially, who's concerned about the values, right? The gold, what it can mm-hmm. yield in terms of profit. So that they get something back from the investments, poor fellows. But parallel with that, they also have a very strong focus on the cultural and historical and, and uh, mystical aspects of this, especially expressed in the series through Rick. Yes. And um, so, um, and, and that means that. If they now succeed in digging, uh, reconstructing rather, the original um, mines or what you should call it, obviously they're going to, because they, they're going to do it, it seems they're going to do it very professional. That's what it seems from the teasers, that they're going to do it very secure and very professional. And then obviously this is going to be a tourist attraction in the future. They, uh, I absolutely agree. I've been right? saying that. I've been saying that for a couple of years now that, from what I've seen, the way they're fortifying the island with those big rocks all the way around the edges to protect it and the paths and all, I think that ultimately, whether they find something or not, the draw of Oak Island is still going to be great. And, we, you know, when they could do tours before COVID, they would sell out within yeah. a half hour, an hour, and they crashed the system on them two years in a <laughs> row go to a, a bigger ticket company, Ticketmaster or somebody like that. Because everybody wants to go there. They want, you know, people love a mystery and they love a mystery that particularly that they think's just about ready to be solved, you know, and everybody all, everybody has their two cents about what the solution is too, you know, and uh, which is interesting. But, um, yeah, and, and and most people aren't even patient enough. You were saying something before we started about their endurance, the patience. And the, the fact is that, um, Already people think, oh, it's taking too long. Oh, we're not seeing anything. So many have abandoned this uh, story because they don't have the patience to keep up with it. I don't get that. I think it's a disease of a modern culture. For me, as long as they progress, which they do, uh, for me, it's just incredibly uh, fascinating. I don't mind this slow movement as long as it is moving forward. And right. but the, and and you can't really blame them either because even though yes, they are, you know, the first season was I think only six episodes, and I bet every season could be six episodes. So so the only thing they are kind of uh, stretching out is this season they're there but they try to put in as much as possible and if they found anything one season obviously that would be featured right <laughs> so it's not their fault that it's going slow yeah. but they have found a lot it's not as if it's that and that's uh, also why they can make a tourist uh, thing out of it because there's actually stuff and if these uh, caves uh, are successful which i don't see any reason it wouldn't be whether they find something or not they already have found enough to keep this uh, interest uh, viable in in terms of tourism, and I for one, I applaud that. And some people, oh, commercial, no, but what do they expect if the if not if not a billionaire or the state want to sponsor this enormous venture? This is the best way we can do it in in this day and age. So, so I'm all for you it. Know, uh, Mel Fisher, he was looking for the Atosha for like 17 years, I believe. And he actually lost uh, two of his relatives in a dive and he continued on, but he finally found it. And Mm. his uh, kids are still uh, down there finding emeralds and things, you know, even to this day. So, you know, things take a while. Uh, It's not, I think it's more difficult 
than people think. And it certainly has been more difficult for my digging in the books because it seems easy on the surface, but you continue to find links and then you have to go to another book and then you have to go to another document. And mm. you, you literally have 20 documents on your screen that you're only going to get three or four paragraphs out of them, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, also contacting people like I've contacted uh, the British people at the British Museum at the Scottish Museum, Scottish National Records, British, uh, what they call National Archives, Scottish National Archives. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And it takes time to find. And, and the Masonic libraries too, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, one of my big helpers in the beginning I've had three Masons that I can point to specifically that have helped me. And one was, is Charles, because every year that I've gone up there from the very first year, which was 2017, he's taken me around the island and shown me things, particularly uh, things that were in process that were covered by my NDA. But still, I was learning all the time. And uh, mm -hmm. he's, uh, it was funny, he took me to see Nolan Cross Rocks and Oh, we, we saw the one, you could see it from the muddy road, but the, the next one we went to was just muck all the way down. <laughs> and uh, it was a long trek because of the muck. But when we got back and we were heading out, first of all, I said, boy, you just seem like the happiest guy in the world. And he said, well, why wouldn't I be? I hunt for treasure on an island every day of my life. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's true. But he was driving the, the uh, four by four and he had a beautiful uh, Masonic ring on. I said, oh, wow, that's a nice masonic ring and he said yep and i carry this and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a knight's templar ring and he said and i carry this in my pocket every day hmm. and he had his reason for why he carried it in his pocket and not on his hand but uh so he's you know deep into it yeah and that's no secret he even wears a cap with a g on it many times in the show <laughs> but he's very cautious about what he says, which is what's right, interesting. Right. It was like right. you almost could have a conspiracy theory that he's there to make sure that the wrong thing isn't found out. Or right. He's, he's one of the secret guardians. <laughs> yes. But then, uh, the other guy that was tremendous help was his name is Kelly Hancock. And he's the uh, he is or he was at the time the grand historian of the Grand Lodges of Freemasonry in Nova Scotia. Hmm. And he had with Doug Carroll for years on a website. Can't think of the site right now. But anyway, he got asked to be this grand historian, so he had to leave his Oak Island work behind. And then Doug was getting so terribly involved in the actual search that he had to leave the other half of it behind. So they took yeah. the website down, but the, you can still find things. But by the time they got it taken down, I pirated as much as I could from it. But <laughs> Kelly... I've seen, I've seen that site. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, Blockhouse, Blockhouse Investigations, isn't it? Yeah. Uh -huh. So Kelly, I met him and, and we talked a little bit. And then out of the blue one day, he sent me an email and he said, you should look up these two books. Well, I never found those two books. See, there's a lot of books that are scanned in by like uh, services or universities, Cornell, Rutgers, people like that, that are books you'd never get a, a chance to look at. Mm. But they're scanned in digitally so you can see a pdf of the actual pages or you can download in most cases you can download a text file so mm. when you're searching for a certain person then you just do a search and every page that that guy's on comes up you know so it's tremendous help but the story is there is that he had recommended these two books that were from the 1800s 
while I was looking for them, I found the book that gave me my main theory and the beginning of Freemasonry, the date, and a treasure that I think at least part of it is buried on Oak Island. And it certainly was used to, without any question at all, it was used to help finance setting up Nova Scotia. And uh, so from that day forward, my focus really came right down on this event. And then, then it kind of expanded out to, well, what supports this event? You know, that's, that's the reason for so many books. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're going to get to to this uh, any moment now, but I just have one uh, more question about the yeah. uh, your experience at Oak Island before we uh, go into that. Okay. And that's that. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if you know the answer to what I'm wondering about. Because from my observation of the show here, it seems to me that uh, the area, uh, garden something, that they, like you said, they discovered it a few years ago first. And I, like you Wonder, I was oh my god, why aren't they exploring this? It's a huge hole, <laughs> it's, a, it's a horizontal hole. Go in, go in. But finally, they did. And that's uh, there's two things I wonder about. Number one, am I correct in assuming that that's an area that, for whatever weird reason, is undisturbed by searchers? So, because you know, the searcher activity, and I said it to Peter Amundsen too when I had him on, it's such a tragedy how the these cowboys i'm talking about not the current team but uh, everybody who's been there in the in history uh, yeah, they, they even blasted it with bombs at some point <laughs> explosives yeah. and so for us who are not just waiting for gold because i don't care if they find gold or not it's nice for them if they do so they get some money back but uh, i'm waiting for like the, the shakespearean collections the ark of the covenant you know anything culturally historically spiritually <clears throat> but it seems to me that <clears throat> this area now and the offset chamber that Marty favors is, of course, an old uh, theory. Uh, Daniel Ronstam uh, also, um, I've had him on here, has been a proponent, although he eventually ended up thinking it's outside of Oak Island, New Ross or something. But okay. it seems to me that this is an undisturbed area, which is super great if they are going to make new uh, cave, uh, replicate the cave step because then it's going to be easier. That's number one. Number two, Charles Barkhouse, who is a wealth of information. He had his own, everybody has had their go kind of in where to, where X marks the spot in terms of the money pit. And uh, it seems to me that Charles Barkhouse spot wasn't, isn't that the one that was closest to where they are now yes. digging? Because it seems to me his was more out of the, uh, main area where everybody else has taught. So, so what do you know about? How can you uh, confirm uh, or deny this? Well, on the uh, on the garden shaft, I think when they first found that, they did some carbon dating and it dated to a searcher shaft. But I think why what the appeal now is that two things. One is that there's a concentration of gold found in the water there, which you know who wouldn't want to go there then. Mm. and also that it does go down quite a ways and could be tunneled off. So rather than them trying to dig something, they can just rebuild that shaft. They can get down, I think it's about 70 or 80 feet, and then they can look for if there were tunnels tunneling off that. Because whoever put that in, if it was Searcher, that's undoubtedly what they did. They must have had an idea of where the money pit was and so they wanted to go down deep enough and then turn sideways and head into the 
into the money pit. So I think that originally, I was like you, I, I, why aren't they digging that thing up right now? But it could have been that they said, well, you know, we have indications of pre-searcher in other places. And we know just from the carbon dating, the ladder that was found or whatever, I don't know what they carbon dated, uh, that this is searcher. So let's go back and focus on yeah, but carbon um, carbon is so no, so unreliable, and now they have carbon dating uh, showing it is older. So, and plus historically, I don't think this was one of the spots the searchers are known to have digged. And the other question about, I believe that was uh, C one that mm. that you're talking about, and that's where they saw saw the so called shiny object in it. Right, and uh, yeah, it was offset a little bit, and. It kind of drew the started drawing them towards that, and a lot of the more recent holes ended up being around there. In fact, I think they did a one of the big uh, caisson drills in that region too. Now that H eight was uh, tremendously productive because that's where the uh, bones were found. And uh, is that is that also close to the garden shaft where they found well, the skeletons? Well, they're all not too terribly far. I mean, you could though the Money Pit Hill, if you want to call that, or Plateau, mm. you could walk across it in l- three minutes, probably, uh, you know, mm. if you brisk walk. So they're trying to really narrow this down to uh, very small areas. Let, let me ask you Let me ask you this, uh, because for me, it's very confusing with uh, feet. We use meters and yeah. kilometers here, right? So let me ask you a, a visual question. If you walk from one end of that plateau to the other, is that going to be shorter or longer than when they drill down? Uh, is it 90 feet? Uh, that is the idea of uh, how deep it goes. So which one is longer? Is it the horizontal walking from one end to another? Or is the it the hill is longer than 90 foot, but it's not uh, It's not quite a football field of length. You know, it's... Uh, mm. Little bit less than a football field of length but it's squared off and it goes up into the hills a little ways uh brushy hills around that surround it at one point there they because they were worried about making sure they had the correct depths readings they flattened that whole hilltop so that they would always be working from approximately the same depth whether that where whether where they flattened it was what represented the old days or not uh, mm-hmm. wanted to have you know the, you have to have some kind of a, a standard to work off you know so they flattened the whole thing and also they had they wanted to bring in the the drills and they had to obviously drive on on a flat ground but when i first went up in 2017 uh, in the spring it was still all rolling i mm. guess you'd call it hillside there you know it wasn't there had been tracks for vehicles to come in but it was not flattened the top of it had not been flattened yet because they didn't really get this idea of this uh, core drilling in 40 different places or whatever until later in the in the search and then they thought well we got to we got to get a standard here where we can we're talking the same language for every hole you know how far down and all that but uh i was up there when they were drilling those 40 holes i they were working on one of them the day i was up and then i was up there when uh, they were putting the gear away and uh they were they had the table there where they'd been throwing those you know those plastic things full of 
core drills yeah. up on there, slicing them and dumping it off the end and everything. It was a, the whole thing was a total muddy mess. You know, it's just crazy. And the yeah. two guys working there, uh, Mike Tetford and I don't remember the other person's name, but they were mud from head to toe. <laughs> I, I've seen Rick. Dirty job. I saw Rick coming out of the swamp one day. He literally, I mean, absolutely, it's not an exaggeration. It was mud from head to toe. And <laughs> he didn't want to meet me that way. Well, I, I'm assuming that. But uh, they put him on a uh, the back of a pickup truck. They wouldn't even let him in the pickup truck. So they had to sit on the tailgate. <laughs> they drove him down to where he could get cleaned up and put on a clean set of clothes. Mm. And then... And then met me, but uh, you know, the, he certainly he certainly isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. That's no, for sure. No, 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 just dive right. But when you say a, fo a football field, I'm assuming you mean American football. Yeah. Do, do you know the size of a soccer field? Uh, yeah, roughly. But I, I think soccer is, is it like half a soccer field? Uh, yeah, they have a whole area, a top area, yeah. horizontally. Yeah, I would say so. Mm, okay, interesting. And, and it doesn't have real hard edges because it, it starts going down hills in different ways, and uh, there still is a little bit of a a brush line up above it, but it's, uh, but you know, they know that that's the general area of interest and they had to flatten it out just to get those caisson drillers in there yeah, and yeah. all of that. But, um, uh, speaking of Rick, he's been such a gentleman and I actually, in 2021, I spent about three hours at his house at, it's not too far from Oak Island. And, uh, he really told me a lot of things that, cause they know that I'm, My NDA, the way it works is if it's specific to the search and to my research, I'm supposed to hold on to it till the end of the season. Yeah. But if it's something personal or on a bigger scale or whatever, it's forever. Mm. Mm. They, they're not going to, they're not going to confide in me with the idea that I'm going to write a book about mm. it, you know? So, uh, but uh, a couple of things he said, which really just were, uh, this was on air. This wasn't to me there, but uh, at the end of one show, it was 2021 season. He said, quote, when you ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how, I think James above all the others really deals with that. Mm. I can tell you what James is not giving up, mm. which of course I'm not. Mm. <laughs> and then also after they found that T square in the swamp that dated uh, to as old as my target date of 1632, This was a big one. He said, you know, theorists have come and gone here, but what separates the real theories as applies to real search, generally those theories have to connect the dots. Yeah. James has come, he connects one fact with another fact. Now, some of them are interpretations of known facts, but the dots are pretty close together, and I am thoroughly impressed. Right. So I would not have been up there as much as I am if it hadn't been for Rick for absolutely for sure uh, because he's so into the history he wants yeah. to know and uh, i send them a lot of emails it's been hundreds and hundreds of them by now i and i also send them to the three people on the prometheus team and they've both told me i sent them to about six people on the oak island team and about three on prometheus and, and both sides have said we aren't going to answer all your emails but we are going to read them and it's just like a history lesson and please don't stop sending yeah. them so sometimes <laughs> I feel like sending them out into the ether yeah. and nobody's paying attention. But every once in a while, I'll get yeah. uh, either a, a note back, particularly from Doug, saying, hey, did you know we just found out this or whatever? Uh, or uh, I'll get called to go on the show, which is more significant. Uh, uh, is the real significant part of it. 
Yeah, and, and 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 Rick is also on the team. I'm saying one of the main proponents of the Bacon um, angle, Shakespeare Bacon, a uh, Rosicrucian angle, which which I personally love. And uh, I think your theory was ranked the second most uh, popular or something. Yeah. Just recently, yeah. Uh, well, well, when they started the season, yep. Maddie Blake had a preseason show, and they it was the top ten theories, and mine was second. Right. And I got a, t- a little bit worried after he got to number five, and because see, the last time about three years ago, I was the number six theory, and <laughs> and they got to number five. I'm like, well, they must have left me out <laughs> totally. Right. And then uh, they got to number three, and I thought I better be in these last two. <laughs> I don't. One, but I better at least be number two, or I'm going to be crying the blues. So, uh, sure enough, it came up, and I was standing right there with my iPhone and filmed it so I could play it back. And then I stayed up and watched the when they rerun it yeah. late into the night. I stayed up and watched it a second time. But uh, yeah, I was really surprised about that, and uh, in a way, I was surprised. But I don't believe anybody. I'm not saying I have the absolute theory, but I don't believe anybody has supplied as much information as I have. Mm. I mean, I have nine books of it plus. And, and details upon details. This is the perfect segue. Yeah. Let's start then with hearing uh, how you on earth become, in, because we know uh, already, and the people heard that from the intro of you, that you are passionate about digging into uh, roots. So that's, that's, that's a given. But the connection to Oak Island, how did this um, start uh, your journey? Well, I have written a book for my own family because we're Scottish, although we have some Norwegian. The Gaelic name was Ushten, which actually is Eistein from the Norwegian countries and our DNA. Do, uh, hang on. Do you know where in Norway? Just out of curiosity. No, no. But our uh, our DNA shows strong Norwegian or Viking DNA. And what was the, lo- the Norwegian name again? Well, it's in Gaelic, it's Ushden, which is U-I-S-D-E-A-N, U-I-S-D-E-A-N. but it's said to come from the Norwegian, which is E-Y-S-T-I-E-N, I think, Eistein. Yeah, that's Eistein. That's, um, uh, that's not a surname. That's a, a first name. Right. And this guy that we de- descend from, his name was Ushden McDonald. So ah, his Eistein McDonald's. Hmm. Yeah. Eistein so, is super Norwegian, just so you know. Yeah. And so the the way I stumbled onto all this was I I had written that years ago, and I actually had emailed with this gentleman. He's the premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia, and we've held that knight baronet title since 1625 continuously. So I actually got a hold of his email, and I emailed him a few times, but I didn't know what it was. For those who don't know, can you just give a brief uh, explanation of knight's baronet? Yes. So... That is a big part of the story, but uh, okay, they're in between the final days of Templarism in Scotland, which I can pinpoint it to on an exact date, which I will do that for you here mm. soon, and the beginning of the Freemasons, uh, the modern, what you call modern, non-operative, accepted Freemasons, which I have the exact date for. It was about a 71-year span, and in that time period, was when exploration to America, particularly by the British, began, and that it originally revolved a lot around uh, the Virginia colony and then the Plymouth colony. And then 
the Nova Scotia colony, and my main suspect was the proprietor. He was given Nova Scotia in 1621. And just to cut real quick to the Knights Baronet, he uh, he had all this land, this gigantic amount of land and resources and all, but he didn't have money or people. So he talked with King James I, who I know you're a big fan of. Yeah. He was a big. He was a counselor for him on his privy council, and he was uh, Secretary of State of Scotland, and he held a lot of positions. And he went to James and said, "I have this idea. We create a new knighthood called the Knights Baronet. They pay us money. You get part of it, and I get part of it. I use their money. I use my share of it to to establish." Uh, Nova Scotia, and you get your share to do what you want with. So James thought that was great. So uh, their idea originally was to have only a hundred of these Knights Baronet. Sometimes I call them the Knights of Nova Scotia because it kind of sounds cool, you know, yeah. the Knights of Nova Scotia. But what, what was this uh, fellow's name again? Who went to James? William William Alexander, okay. and he is the key to everything. Yeah. And you'll hear me mention him a lot of times. Okay. But he also had a real close partner in all of this. And his name was Alexander Strachan. He signed his name L quite often. So <laughs> rather than get too many Alexanders going, like which Alexander yeah. is Jim talking about now, I always call Alexander Strachan L. Oh. And I always call, quite often, I just call William Alexander Sir William so that we don't get the okay. all these Alexanders flowing every which way. But mm -hmm. anyway, to get to, to the end of that particular part of the story, in 1625, they created what they called the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia, and you had to pay a certain fee. And, you know, it's very hard to translate money from back then to now because, first of all, it was Scottish money versus British money or English money. And the years, you know, there's a lot of gaps. But at the height, highest level, it could have been about a half a million dollars in today's wow. U.S. dollars that they paid to be a knight. Uh, at the lowest level, it was down around 50000 but regardless, it was a fair chunk of money. And what was different about this knighthood than any, any other knighthood was you normally to be a knight, you had to go out and do something brave, mm. like kill, slay a dragon or kill the enemy of the king or something. Mm. But in this case, you just got your wallet out and bought it. Wow. Well, that ticked off a lot of existing knights right off yeah. the bat yeah. because they're like, wait a minute, we had to earn ours. These guys are just buying theirs. And they yeah, got this is so late in history that the whole knights thing uh, is declining. Yeah. But, really. but did you say 1695 was the foundation? 20, 1625. That makes sense because 95. Yeah. Uh, when did James die? Uh, he died four days after establishing the Knights Baronet. And, uh, oh, wow. So he died in in 25 then? Yeah, he didn't even get to see it go into fruition, but uh, wow. his son picked right up on it because they saw the worth of it for two reasons. Number one was a steady source of income immediately for the, knight, the kings, because the kings were always spending more than they had. That was just, you know, that's just the way it always seemed to be. But also... Uh, they saw it as a group of people that would aggressively settle the new world. 
you know, but they would uh, have. Let me begin here with an observation. If they made it uh, this commercial, it seems to me that the intention must have been to accumulate money for a reason. I mean, not just to like, it's not a scam. It's not just, yeah, let's get rich, but uh, they needed to generate funds for something. And if he died in 1625, do you know when Bacon died? I think Bacon was dead uh, around this time too. He died in 26. 26, right. So this is interesting. Yeah. By the way, before you go on, do you know if Bacon was involved with the Knights Baronet somehow? Have you found any indication? Well, he was, William Alexander is the one that started it with King James, and Bacon was a close associate of Alexander. He was on the Privy Council with him. Alexander was a, a poet and playwright also. He was highly regarded in, in his day, and some of his works are mirrored in Shakespeare's works, and there's still debate about. Oh who, my God! Who wrote which first? Yes, yes, yes. And we've had—I uh, actually have a series now where I invite all sorts of non-Stratfordians. I've, uh, I'm going to have on Marlovians. Of course, I, I'm myself a Baconian. Um, we're going to have. Uh, we I already had an Oxfordian that's not out yet. Uh, so so we're going to get it from all angles. But I always favor the group theory. Because I know, well, yeah, because I know, just, yeah, I'm going to just uh, say this. I, I know that the, it was a bigger project than just Shakespeare. And uh, uh, I think Bacon, at least for the Shakespearean part of this enormous project, was the organizer on, on probably on behalf of King James. And uh, when you now say that William Alexander was a playwright, because they recruited many of these people were uh, n- uh, nobility, yeah. They were involved somehow in uh, uh, these arts, theater and stuff like that, and, and writing, authoring. And they were also initiate, you know, esoteric, you know, connected to stuff like Rosicrucians, Templars and Masons. So I, this places Sir William Alexander as a super important spider in all these connections to these side stories that many people who are interested in Oak Island maybe are not aware of. It depends on <laughs> which angle they have to it. I am, of course, because my angle was from from this uh, to begin with. So now I'm extremely stoked about William Alexander. So uh, pardon for interrupting you. Go on. Well, here's let me paint a scenario here for you. Yep. There's a place, it still exists, in London called Charing Cross. And its original purpose was the what they call the notional center of London, which meant it was an arbitrary point they chose to measure all distances to other cities or whatever, you know, but it didn't mean it was physically the center of anything. But named Charing Cross. Well, mm-hmm. Bacon, Alexander, and Thomas Howard, who you're going to hear how important he is to the story, all lived there. They all died there. In fact, Bacon died at Thomas Howard's house. Wow. And Within about a four-minute walk, the only house that William Shakespeare is ever known to have purchased in his own name, his house was about a four-minute walk from where guys lived. Wow. He was living, he had the Globe Theater on the other side of the Thames River from where Charing Cross is. Mm. That burnt, and he came across to their side of the river, and he built a smaller theater and built a house there. So... But this Thomas Howard that I just mentioned, why he's so important to this is because he was he was the grandmaster of the stonemasons when the first Freemasons were initiated, number one. Number two, 
his name is in the form of his title, Earl Verendale, was on a map that William Alexander drew of Nova Scotia back in, he published it in 1624. So the only year he could have drawn it was in 1623. And uh, so his name was on that. Well, I translated the 90-foot stone using a code created by Mary Queen of Scots and used by her. Mm -hmm. A, that this Thomas Howard's grandfather, who was named Thomas Howard, was executed because he was found with Mary's code under his four tiles. He wanted to marry her. The, the family fell apart, but his grandson, Thomas Howard, was able to put everything back together and... The big kicker was I didn't even know who this guy was when I started translating that stone. His name appears on the 90-foot stone twice with the Masonic symbol of the three-dot triangle in front of his name. Wow. But, but wait a minute. But your your translation of the stone hasn't been featured in the show, has it? No. No. They've, they've heard it. They've heard it in the war room. And I've sent them many other things about it. But it just – I that's in my book. Oak Island Curses, Codes, and Secret Societies. And I explained the whole whole thing. And uh, there's a symbol on the stone. It's a three-dotted triangle. And it's on there three times. Yeah. And they've never really talked about it much. And when Daniel Romstead put out his uh, interpretation, he characterized that as a um, like a period or a, a comma type thing, you mm. know, to continue on to another thing and i didn't know what it was when i gave my presentation mm. but it wasn't long before i found out that that is the current symbol for master mason and it, you can find it online thousands, of thousands. yeah you know what uh, freemasons still use it in yep. their sign and greetings uh, it's in esoterica they have like it's three dots um and uh, rosicrucians use it too by the way both rosicrucians and masons yep. others use others like for example the martinist use six dots the pythagorean used four dots but it's super interesting that masons and rosicrucians to this day use three dots yes and many cases without knowing why obviously i'm going to ask you later to translate it for us but there's many balls you're trying to un unravel now one is uh, don't forget that you're also going to tell us how you started the oak island connection but i think you should continue okay. you're still on the if they lived this uh, close to each other they had ample opportunity to plot together <laughs> yes and yeah. and what's so e extraordinary about this is that new ross and the foundation up there mm. well the old name for that area was Charing Cross. And there's only two places in all of the world and in all of history that have ever been called Charing Cross. Mm -hmm. One of them is where Howard, Bacon, Alexander, and Shakespeare lived. Well, Shakespeare didn't live quite at Charing Cross, but he was within a four-minute walk. Mm. And the only other one was New Ross. And the Alexander family and a few Mi'kmaq First Nations men have said that that foundation there was built by William Alexander as a a secret estate from where he could get a foothold in Nova Scotia and he could go over the mountain to, well, not him personally every time, but his people could go over the mountain to spy on the French who were at Port Royal on the opposite side. And one person kind of in the know up there, uh, he's a treasure hunter, successful treasure hunter, 
told me that he thinks that they actually attacked from there because they know that they took over Port Royal from the French. But he said the Bay of Fundy that comes in there has the highest tides in the world. And he said, you can imagine, you could sail all the way across the ocean, try to sail up the highest tides in the world while they're sitting there waiting for you with their cannons mm. to blow you out of the water. So he said, there's, there's just no way they attacked from the sea. Mm. He said they would have uh, defeated immediately. So he said, I believe they came up over there. He said, I know there were old trails. But anyway, to get back to the what prompted this was how did I get onto yeah. this and, and how did it relate to Oak Island? So I had this in my mind about our family had the uh, premier or oldest, if you want to call it, uh, Knights Baronet title from 1625. And I was watching the show in the third year and I was just sitting there and they said, they were talking, kept saying about Nova Scotia. And I thought, wait a minute, uh, Knights Baronet, Nova Scotia, you know? So I, I called or actually I wrote them and then they called me back and we talked for an hour and then hundreds of emails translated back and forth. And I, I knew very little, but they were the ones directing the questions and they weren't like directing me in a, in a certain direction. They were just saying, well, who is that guy? Or, you know, mm-hmm. or what, when did that, or whatever. And then I, I would just get more and more, more stuff. And I finally, they said, you know, well, all your stuff's going to get lost because we just have it in our emails. We think you should write a book. And that was my first one, which was what, what's that Oak, Island, Oak Island missing links. And that mm-hmm. was, a little bit more general, although I did mention William Alexander in it. But then I got this theory about, I found out that they had to leave Port Royal in March of 1632. And it would have been virtually impossible to sail back during that month because of the weather. Mm-hmm. But when they, and the weather on the Port Royal side was much milder than the weather on the Atlantic Ocean side. When they came around the horn of Nova Scotia, the first thing they would have wanted to do was pull into a a bay in the deepest bay back into the land, not in depth, but back into the land is Mahone Bay. Mm-hmm. And the furthest island back is Oak Island. And it actually, before the causeway, you could hide boats right behind it mm-hmm. from a storm or from the enemy. So it was a perfect place to go. And uh, But because so many items were found in the swamp, particularly of from ships, I thought, well, they must have lost a ship there because why would there be so many parts there? Well, in uh, 2018, I believe it was, uh, Rick had me meet with this gentleman, this treasure hunter I was telling you about. He actually dove on a shipwreck. Uh, this must have been 2019, yeah. On a shipwreck that's, he says, within sight of Oak Island. He pulled up some spoons and forks that had a logo on them that matched the shield of my second uh, suspect, Al Strachan. And he had the same underwater archaeologist that worked with Mel Fisher date the ship from his notes that he took. And he dated it to being built just before 1600, which my theory takes place basically and ends in 1632 there. And uh, but it starts in 1621, and he said there was a 50 percent chance of it. E- it either ha- absolutely had to be English or British, I should say, mm-hmm. or Spanish, because there were there's these things called trunnions that hold canyons cannons onto the ship deck, and he said they were the only two countries that used them at that yeah, time yeah. period. So 
Got yeah, it. just a fun fact, and that's that according to Peter Amundsen's research, um, he thinks that Thomas Bushel, after Bacon's death, uh, and by the way, Bacon's body, he may have died in um, Thomas Howard's house, but, you know, the famous burial place of Bacon has proven to be empty. So yeah. many people think he was, if he was the head of the Shakespearean part of this project, then he could be the symbolic uh, corpse being buried there because there's some Masonic Templar lore baked into the for some reason they wanted to mythologize the entire thing so uh, when they duplicated this new place probably at Oak Island or this new Jerusalem according to Be uh, Peter Amundsen's theory okay. they also needed this father CRC this uh, uh, body to to play that part so th that's just that but the thing is he said that Bushel used Spanish, one way to keep this under wraps. Of course, there was no internet, no mobile phones, but there was still a danger of rumors. And probably they knew they couldn't avoid rumors anyway, which is a great explanation for why they put up a decoy. But thing is, one of the uh, thinking here was that Bushel hired, uh, I think it was prison labor, Spanish prison laborers. Oh, really? Because, uh, yes, because first of all, they talked another language and uh, they wouldn't be well versed in English. And so that would kind of limit the rumor mill. In addition, who knows what be fair happened to them, but they wouldn't also be prone to be believed or you know, have a great influence into they couldn't write about it or whatever, right? So right. so that's very so this Spanish a British connection has always been in in my mind logical that there would have to be both Spanish and British traces. And of course I, I think uh, you will explain to us how the French will come in later. But uh, so those two things I find very interesting. So whether that ship if it's connected to you said uh, Al Stratton Strachan, yeah, Strachan, yeah. Strachan, because of the shield, then uh, it, it still could be both British and Spanish uh, connections there. It would make total sense. Uh, well, and I'm trying to look for it right now in one of my books, but Alexander wrote a couple of uh, letters and they insinuated that this had to be kept secret and that the word was getting out. And it, he doesn't state what <laughs> he doesn't state what was being kept secret, but mm -hmm. in in my mind, it was uh, the whole project uh, attempt to settle Nova Scotia. Mm. But I mean, they have the, the actual letters. Um, I wish I could find them here quicker, but I have so much. I've I literally had backed up my drive from one external drive to another one, and it took like four days, and there was a million over a million and a half files on it mm. so uh, uh to go back in and find stuff but i have myself a pretty nice written out timeline and i have pdfs of all my books mm. semi-handy but um anyway uh i didn't find that but uh so uh, in the idea of bacon dying and all that the story wasn't always told and, you know, I don't want to get into a bunch of conspiracy theories here, but in the Alexander family... The entire project is a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, Go on. It, it is, too, because these people conspired to exactly. uh, create a utopia mm. in uh, Nova Scotia, basically. Now, Bacon had land in uh, Newfoundland uh, that he, he uh, started a Newfoundland colonization company or something like that, I believe, in... Uh, 1610 or 1611 going to my timeline right here 
1610, he had land. He called it the Newfoundland Colonization Company. And it extended, uh, I've read where it extended down towards Cape, pretty much to Cape Breton. And then William Alexander's land started at Cape Breton and went down. Wow. And Al Strachan's land was over in what is now New Brunswick. I actually have his deed and I, uh, well, a digital copy of it. And I, so the neighbors in the new country too. <laughs> it, right. And Thomas <laughs> Howard was over in uh, upper Maine, upper New England, about as high up as you could get. So if you look at that map of, uh, William Alexander's, uh, well, he doesn't actually mention Bacon on it because he doesn't show Newfoundland, mm. but you could expand that map a little wider. You'd see Bacon at the top, you know, in Newfoundland, uh, Alexander in the center there, Strachan over in New Brunswick and Thomas Howard <laughs> over in, uh, and not only Thomas Howard, but right next to Howard's was uh, this other guy, William Herbert. He was uh, the Earl of Pembroke. They're real close neighbors. And they were both grandmasters of the of the Scottish stonemasons, mm. both of them. So well, the way that worked was wait, um, wait a minute, Scottish stonemason. You mean operative or symbolic? Operative, operative. Interesting. It, the the um, you know it, it, I wrote I I found this quote. It was by some somewhat obscure writer, but it just hit home because it says a story has no beginning or end. Arbitrarily, one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back or from which to look ahead. So that is one of the hardest parts of this because uh, it's really like the, I believe anyway, the activities in Nova Scotia took place principally from uh, 1623 to 1632. But that would be just the center ring, and then everything else would build out from that. What built, you know, what built up to them going there in 1621? Why they left in 1632? What happened right after 1632? And what did happen right after they left was that two years afterwards, the first, what you would call a modern Freemason, uh, they were initiated at this chapel in Edinburgh called Mary's Chapel. And they were the two sons of William Alexander and his partner, Al Strachan. Those are, you can find those on many Masonic websites. You mean one one son of each? Uh, well, no, Al Strachan himself and then two sons of William Alexander. Okay. Mm. So his namesake, William Jr., was number one, and his son, Anthony, was the second one. Mm. And Al Strachan was the third one. And... What I think kind of happened, I'm trying to make a big picture of this, but the Templars, uh, all of their final possessions and uh, properties were dissolved in 1563. It was They were relinquished to Mary, Queen of Scots. And then in July of 1634 is when these first men were initiated. Well, what happened in between those se 71 years was this whole attempt to settle America and the creation of the Knights Baronet and the and the Shakespeare stuff and the Rosicrucian stuff. Right. All that happened right <laughs> in that time period. Yeah. And then I so I kind of think that they saw that the end of Catholic chival chivalry type of an organization within Scotland was no longer possible because of the starkness of the Presbyterian religion and their all the killing time battles between the Catholics and the and the Presbyterians and all that. And I think they decided, you know what, there's no 
there's no stock in putting our uh, hopes in any religion, period, mm. and or in our. Uh, and, I, and I had good reason to be bitter at the Catholics after right. what happened originally. So, and also not in any king because the kings they had been backstabbed by King Charles mm. for one thing, and. Mm. Uh, the lives of kings were sometimes <laughs> literally chopped off. Yeah, yeah. And so I think they I think they said, here's a organization that's A, secretive, B, has a lot of members who are strong men who have a code of ethics, and C, they could be the people that, because the Knights Baronet didn't work and the Knights Templar are gone now, these could be the people where we could have our secret society with no religion and no politics, but start an effort to fix the society, either fix the society in the old world or establish uh, a utopia as much as they could mm. in the new world. Mm. And they saw this as a vehicle. They, they saw the, the stonemason lodges, particularly Edinburgh Lodge Number 1, mm as the vehicle in which they could do all this and they could hide their association with each other, uh, hide their Rosicrucian ideas, their Templar ideas. And there, the, the Shaw statutes, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but William Shaw was in charge of the stonemasons uh, right, right. through his uh, title as the master of public works for Scotland. Mm. And he thought they were getting a little out of hand or whatever. And so he, published this thing called the Shaw Statutes in 1599. And it, you know, it, it stresses uh, being true to God and to the king and also true to the craft. It was like a three-pointed thing, you know. And, uh, but it does not talk about anything esoterical. It doesn't talk about any degrees. It doesn't talk about any ceremonies or anything. It's very matter of fact. It's more as a constitutional thing, uh, organizational. Yeah, yeah. And you do your job. You make your stone the right way. You mark your stone with your mason's mark. Because if it's found defective, you're not going to get paid and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then in uh, 1632, the same year of coincidentally, I think in this case, I, I'm not going to write my theory off to coincidence anymore. I used to always say, well, it could be coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but in this particular case, it may have been coincidental that it was the same year, but it's called the old charges of Freemasonry. And it, again, does not speak of anything esoteric or ceremonial or uh, there were levels as far as an apprentice and a, and a journeyman or a master mason, that type of thing. It, it, it was three degrees, right? Like the blue, yeah. blue masonry. Yeah. Right. But it wasn't uh, esoteric degrees like there are today. So from those published documents and their substantial documents, the indication is that before 1634, there was none of that within the stonemason lodges. But after 1634, it was July 3rd, 1634, when these three gentlemen were first initiated and then somewhat rapid fire other people were initiated and one of those was david ramsey who was the uh, clockmaker for the king but he was also into uh, the occult mm. and he had a um, he would do uh, the sticks where you find water whatever that uh can't figure what scrying scrying yeah and and he had a philosopher's stone 
And he actually got a bunch of people together once and looked for buried treasure within Edinburgh Castle. And uh, (laughs) I guess there was a big storm and they wrote it off to the spirits didn't want him to find it. But regardless, he was a fan of Rosicrucianism and he arranged a meeting between William Alexander and William Alexander's friend, William Vaughn, to bring Rosicrucian to meet the king. And that Rosicrucian's name was uh, Ziegler can't think of his first name uh so they were into it enough to where they brought uh they brought one to uh to meet the king wait wait and, a minute what year are we on and are we talking about king james you know what i don't know what, exactly the year on that but uh i can i'd have to go dig it out yeah, and yeah. later in our talk maybe i'll find it but uh so they were into into that and they were friends of of uh Bacon and Thomas Howard was actually a patron of Bacon, hmm. and in fact, they felt or of Shakespeare, and they feel that he uh, met face to face with Shakespeare quite often, and it's probable it's probable that they all did because they he was the top. Whether he wrote all his plays or not, he was, he, he, he was the front man. He was the one paid yeah. to or, be the face outward because they couldn't be associated with uh, these kind of affairs back then. It was beneath the nobilities to involve themselves mm-hmm. in. They could be they could be patrons of it. They could uh, enjoy it as audience, but they could certainly not author it, nor be actors. Uh, maybe they could have own a share in a theater. Uh, maybe that's that's possible. But yeah, that was how it was. Go on. And and just on that point there, and there just are so many points. But yeah, yeah. Uh, there, I know that there are theories about numerology within Bacon's writing, and also I don't remember the term for it, but it's when uh, certain paragraphs start with a certain Ste- steganography. Yeah, but what's absolutely known is that these authors wrote plays to influence the king mm. and they used characters that were very much like the king right. and they used characters that were very much like the people that were around the king and it was a way for them to cajole him into taking a certain action without and he loved just like elizabeth he loved these plays yeah and and so it was like a, almost like a semi-conscious attempt on his part, he would learn from these plays and say, oh, my gosh, that's just like mm. what's going on with me. Maybe I should, you know, so they purposely did that. Mm. And there's, they have several examples in it. In the same way, it was true with a lot of the early nursery rhymes. Mm. You know, they are all they relate them all back to actual people, not all of them, mm. but a lot of them back to actual people. Uh, but they just didn't dare come right out and mm. say it, you know, you or, gonna, or events, people or events. What, uh, well, people and and people that were involved in events, yeah, yeah, and uh, so it was a common thing to do that. And that, if if there was fear on their part of Shakespeare's plays or Bacon's writings or anything being discovered, that I think is where the fear uh, lay. Because if the king would find out that, for instance, just as an example, it was William Alexander who wrote a play that said that, that uh, some ancient king was doing something wrong and he needed to straighten out and they could they could trace it back mm. he could get his head lopped off for insulting the king you know mm. so i think they were using these plays to specifically steer 
both King James and King Charles in certain areas and without them knowing it, hopefully, and it's and especially without them knowing who was the person that authored it. Because they didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be directed at the king, uh, but it could also yeah. be directed at uh, at the base level. They wanted to influence society, uh, but there's also oh, yeah. there's also evidence that they were communicating. Remember, there were no emails back then, but it was an excellent way to communicate with uh, similar-minded people across borders. Because we know that uh, yeah. this core group. Is, was a part of a bigger group, and uh, the uh, entire network seems to have been span across Europe. Uh, remember that Knights Templars, Masons, and Rosicrucians wasn't a British limited to right. it was an international project. So there was so much going on here. But uh, uh, I want to say that uh, before we go on, that uh, uh, yeah, uh, we talk about steganography. Bacon was a master in this, but he wasn't alone. There was many of these who were, but uh, one of them who pre was a predecessor to Bacon was John Dee, who was close to uh, Elizabeth. Yeah. And uh, John Dee, again, wasn't just a part of this coding. This coding thing they were doing back in the day, it was huge. Any everybody was into it, even... Um, people who may not have been associated with esotericism. Uh, it was used for two purposes, though. It, one was spiritual, esoteric. The other was in terms of intelligence agency, early intelligence agency. Spycraft. Right, yeah, yeah spycraft. So, uh, and it all goes back to, I forgot his name, but I think he was he was a, certainly an occultist, maybe a, a Knights Templar, but he was a famous priest who lived... Uh, uh, before even John D, he he was one of the inventors of one of the codes. I should remember his name is so basic. Oh. But before we even go on from this story, just remember your thought where you are, because I have a question that kind of rewinds things. You you just said in um, bypass, you said uh, that the Knights Templars was dissolved in ninety three. Although you want to start your story there, I think you should give that background too, because that's a significant statement. Okay, well, um, so when the Templars that, there was already a Templar presence in Scotland before they were dissolved in France. They, they owned over 600 properties, and uh, a lot of them were like tenant buildings, cathedrals, things like that, that were just large, what you might call a ranch or a farm where they lived, you know, uh, with a castle on it and all that. Mm. And uh, so because in spite of the fact that Scotland was excommunicated because Robert de Bruce wouldn't play ball with the English, they still wanted to remain Catholic because that's to some degree, that's all they knew. Now there yeah. were other, there were pagan religions and there was a fair amount of Jewish Kabbalism there too, but they essentially wanted to remain Catholic. So even after England turned Anglican, they still tried to remain Catholic for quite a while. And it wasn't until Mary Queen of Scots reign when everything shifted and she was uh, she was born Catholic and she was taken to France when she was young uh, so that she wouldn't be killed by invading English or by reform Protestants mm. basically mm. and uh, so when she went to France she married the French heir to the throne they call him the Dauphin of French his name was France and it's actually like the word dolphin but it doesn't have the L in it mm. but it means the same thing and mm. 
her mother was French, married to guys. And so when she, when her father died and she went to France, she was, he died when she was six days old and she went to France, her mother, who was French, took over Scotland and Scotland and French, France had this thing called the old Alliance that dated from like 1295 in which it was basically like NATO is today. Mm. It was like anybody attacks you, we attack them. Mm type of situation it lasted all the way up to 1560 so she married uh, francis and he eventually became king but he only lasted like a year or year and a half and uh in the meantime she was living in france and uh in the meantime the reformation essentially uh, the what they called the lords of the congregation who were protestant scotsmen were getting were gaining strength and the married guys had brought in a bunch of Frenchmen that established a fort right near Edinburgh, mm. right on the river there. Mm. And it was to be like a, a rapid deployment force if the Catholics were getting dumped on too bad. And uh, but the these lords of the congregation who were basically Presbyterian did not want them there anymore. So they, uh, they, first the English came up and attacked them, and then uh, the Scots helped out and attacked them. Well, they finally decided, okay, we're going to, the French said, okay, we're going to leave because you got us, it's a siege, we can't survive, so we're going to leave. But they wanted a treaty, and so the they signed a treaty, and this gentleman that I'm going to tell you about, his name was James Sandylands, and he's very critical to the story. He went to France and got the signatures of Mary, the Queen of Scots, and her husband to this treaty. He was on the committee for the treaty, and guess who else was? Charles de la Rocha, Rocha Facult. Oh, wow. Here all the time yeah. with Oak Island. Yeah. He was representing the Catholic French, Sandy Lance, even though he was Catholic at the time, and he was the leader of the, of the Templars and the Knights of St. John, which were Catholic organizations, he was leaning towards the Protestant religion, and he was actually good friends with John Knox, who was, you know, the catalyst behind it. Mm. So he went to uh, France, and he got their signatures on it, and they made the whole deal. It's called the Treaty of Edinburgh, and basically it said these French will leave Scotland, and there will be a whole new treaty. It won't be the old old alliance anymore. There will be a new treaty uh, between, it's called the Anglo-Scottish Accord, where it would be between England and Scotland, but France would be on the, uh, not not outside of it or on the outskirts of it. They'd be part of it, but they wouldn't be a substantial part of it. Mm. And they want everybody to agree to this. Well, this James Sandylands, he was, he had been, he'd studied in Malta and he became a Knight of St. John. And then he became the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John. Wow. And so much of the Knights of Malta property and possessions fell into the hands of the Templars. Mm. Uh, this was in the 1500s that he also was the legal representative and often called the Grand Master of the Templars in Scotland. Mm. He also happened to be the Grand Master of the Scottish Freemasons all at the same time. Mm. So this guy was like major league. What, what year are we so, talking about now? Well, this is 1560 when all this started going down. Mm, okay. And uh, so shortly after he went there to get them to sign the treaty, well, shortly before he went to go to there, 
married to guys who was acting as the regent in Scotland for her daughter, died of suspected poisoning. Shortly after he leaves France, Francis the King Francis II, Mary's husband, dies of suspected poisoning. Now, the official, it was an ear-brain infection, but the Catholics insisted he was poisoned by the Protestants. Mm. So uh, that left Mary alone in France, and her brother-in-law took over as king, even though she continued to be called Mary Queen of Scots and of France. Mm. She was also the most legitimate claim for England because of Henry VIII had so many wives that uh, Elizabeth wasn't considered legitimate by a lot of people, and Mary actually descended from uh, Henry VII, Mary Queen of Scots. Right. So, you know how... And and Elizabeth didn't really want Mary to take over, did she? Oh, no. No. That was a bone of contention between the two of them, Mm. basically their whole lives. Mm. So, Sandy Lands uh, made a deal. Now, he was the Grandmaster of the the Remnants of the Knights Templar and of the Knights of St. John and the Grandmaster of the Scottish Stonemasons. He made a deal with Mary that he would relinquish all Templar and St. John lands and possessions to Mary, Queen of Scots, in trade, and he would also give her 10,000 crowns, which I don't know what that translates to today. Mm -hmm. But in return, he would be given a big chunk of the Templar properties, and he would be called Lord Torpichon. Wait wait a minute. You just said that he was going to give Templar property to Mary. Why would he then get? Was it a swap? Well, yeah, the swap was that it, in other countries, they had already pressured any Templars or Knights of St. John to relinquish their properties. Mary was kind of a holdout because it was a Catholic country and she was trying to keep it Catholic. Mm-hmm. So it was worth than having these Catholic orders of Knights mm-hmm. in the country. But she was under a lot of pressure from the, the lords of the congregation because they were they were very powerful. A lot of the chiefs of the clans were turning to the Protestant religion. And so she was under and uh, the barons, powerful men. So they struck a deal and on it's recorded historically on March 24th of 1563, the way the document reads, he person, this is quote, he personally compare it, which means appeared in person mm. in the presence of the queen's majesty, which is Mary queen of Scots, mm the Lord Chancellor, the Earls of Murray Marshall, and divers other of Her Highness's Privy Council, and there as the only lawful, undoubted titular and present possessor of the lordships and preceptories of Torpichon, which was never subject to any charter or covenant whatsoever, except only the Knights of Jerusalem and the Temple of Solomon, resigned and overgave in the hands of our Sovereign Lady, his undoubted superior, all our sovereign lady, his undoubted superior, all right, property, and possessions which he had or could pretend to the said preceptory forever. Mm. So at that point on that day, he turned over every possession and mostly property that had belonged to the Templars or the Knights of St. John. Also, he had to turn over 10,000 crowns. Mm. What he got in return was he received a temporal title, you know, like a standard title of Lord Torpichon, but he got a lot of land. He got a lot of land that used to be temporal land, but it was more... In which country? In Scotland. So he got Scottish land. Right, right. Yes. Mm. And so 
and the lands that he got were lands associated with the with the uh, Templars, like Mary Coulter was one of them. That the and Bellantropic these these are names that people that know about the Templars mm. would understand who, what those lands were. And so the idea was that it was. Hang gonna, on, do, do you know if he got any of the caves that are rumored that Templars were dwelling in or using? Well, it ain't, it only states the actual names of the lands. It doesn't get into the details, but I could all. That's a good point because any one of these could be, since we know the names of the areas he received, any one of those could now be studied on its own, mm. and you know, and found out. Because uh, there are rumors that some of these treasures were, bare, were were hidden for a while in these caves, and I think somehow King James, if he was involved in this project with Bacon, I don't know if he was an insider or outsider, but. It, you know, I've I've seen in some historical notes that there was that Bruce and James was it the father of James and the Bruces? Well, he he was an ancestor for sure, but there were a few generations in between them. For yeah, sure. but the, but but the the, the, the this was uh, James' father and the current Bruce. Uh, I read in uh, history, but this wasn't about Oak Island or the Templars, but it was a really interesting passage. Uh, I should have uh, found it so I could share it with you, but I don't don't have it prepared. Okay. But I noticed it because I've been looking for connections between, because I think one, one, one clue is that James um, may have inherited something from his father that he in turn uh, wanted Bacon to okay. get out of there. And um, I read something about uh, a secret between uh, James' father and uh, this Bruce that, but it didn't say explicit that it was Knights Templar, but that's my fir the first thing I associated to it. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I want to spend time going into that now because I don't have it in front of me, so it's a non-case. Non, uh, but uh, the thing is that um, these uh, uh, caves, uh, I forgot what they're called, the famous caves, Templar caves in Scotland, I think that may have been one of the temporary places they, they kept it in this period. And when they then dissolve the Templars, they obviously need a new safe space for this stuff. Yes. Is, is my point. And so here's where it connects directly to the Knights Baronet. Mm. This is an absolute connection right now, is that he was required to pay this 10,000 crowns, but he was not asked to pay it directly to Mary, Queen of Scots. He was given the names of five men to pay it to. Mm -hmm. And the first guy that's listed turned out to be a spy that for Mary's third husband, who was hung for being involved in the death of her second husband. We don't need to get into that right now. Mm -hmm. But the next three guys, and I have to actually credit my Freemason friend that's helping me. He's the third Freemason that's been helping me, uh, Dr. John Hamill, Hamels. But he said, what about these names? They're the same names are on the Knights Baronet list that are were given the money. And uh, so I did the genealogies of them. And one was James Balfour and his great grandson, James Balfour, became a Knight Baronet. Another one was Robert Richardson, and his grandson, Robert Richardson, became a knight baronet. And the third one was Robert, I can't know how to say this, Anthruster, Anthruster. Anyway, his son, Robert, or his grandson, Robert, also became a knight baronet. And so did Sandy Land's heir, his, his uh, nephew, took over for him. So there's four people 
specifically associated with this dissolution of Templar property in Scotland, whose uh, grand, or relative, close relative, grandson, nephew, or great-grandson became Knight's Baronet. So uh, it's like everybody, the, the only guy that didn't was the guy that got executed for being a spy, mm-hmm. you know, but the rest of them did. Mm-hmm. So there's an absolute connection of, of the Templars to the Knight's Baronet. And that's not the only one because amazingly we've been we took the more standard list of baronets because there are they do vary a little bit but most of them are the same and i i actually have to attribute most of this to my uh friend we call him doc uh you know he's he's got a phd Mm -hmm. Uh, but he has been doing a spreadsheet and there are out of the the original knight's baronet because it only lasted so long Mm -hmm. Uh, there are 53, I believe there was 120, roughly 120 in the end mm-hmm. that signed up. But 53 known Knights Baronet that had direct connections back to Knights Templar. Mm. Grandfathers. 53 out uh, of 100. And- uh, yeah. So, and that's all we know about. We don't know them all yet. Right, We're still right. studying at least half of them. Right. Then four, he's found 41 Knights Baronet that had both Templar and Freemason connections mm. over time. Mm. He's found 23 actual original Knights Baronet that became Freemasons themselves. Mm. That's a quarter of them. Mm. And then he has 11 Knights Baronet surnames connected to lot ownership on Oak Island. Wow. And he has 24 Knights Baronet surname connections to Freemasons in Halifax. In Halifax. Mm. Oh, and I have to tell you that I told you about this Al Strachan guy. Yeah. Well, see, he stole the treasure. And what? he was excited. He stole this massive treasure. It was like the biggest treasure in in that anybody owned at the time. Stole it in October of from who? Six two. From Earl the Earl Marshal of Scotland, his name was George Keith. Okay, so not the not a Templar treasure, just a treasure. No. Yeah. Well, but it could some of it could be because mm. all of these people trace back to a Templar somewhere. Right, right. But also Keith's family had been the marshals, Earl Marshals of Scotland for many generations, and they were in a position where they could scarf up valuables, you know, and who would ever contest them because they were the top law enforcement officer, mm. you know, and people weren't particularly High-level people weren't particularly honest back then, you know. Right. And there's a lot of backstabbing and and stealing. Yeah, and when you can let the knights buy themselves into the hot circles, right. then uh, that's what you get. Money talks. So he stole it in October of twenty set of twenty two, mm-hmm. and by twenty by spring of twenty three, the guy died, and then he married the guy's wife so that it would be in his mind and, and in their mind, I guess, it would be an, a legal assumption of all this treasure but the government oh i see i see i see so the guy he stole it from died in 23 and then he yeah. and al stretch and then married his married widow, widow? Yeah. was that it yeah and so Jesus, he took his treasure and his wife yep <laughs> what a crook <laughs> and so he probably thought in his own mind well now i'm home free because yeah it's legalized to me, but yeah. the government didn't see it that way, and they indicted him. Oh. And he he was under indictment for until January of 1625, when all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, he gets a complete pardon from King James. 
he's made a partner with William Alexander in Nova Scotia, mm. and he finances a ship. There's a document that shows his name along with two other gentlemen as the financiers of the ship, and he purchases his own property in, in New Brunswick, which was actually part of Nova Scotia at the time. Obviously, obviously, he, they used him to, to pay some of yeah. this. Yeah. And the f- initial... Almost every one of the initial six or seven Knights Baronet were all involved in that robbery somehow, ah. uh, except for William Alexander. They were uh, one of them was actually also indicted. He was pardoned. Another one was the uh, ba- like the bailman bondsman for Al Strachan during the trial, so they could be out. And uh, you know, so there are people like that. that oh, even one of the sons, one of the sons mm. of the guy that was robbed, was. Uh, one of the first baronets so if you look at that list you you know what i have to i have to speculate here because this is so interesting i don't think if it was such a venture this robbery then it sounds like there must have been some uh, disagreement about uh i don't think this was about the money uh these wasn't he wasn't poor and then he he became wealthy from robbing right so it sounds to me that there's some kind of factions going on here and when they brought him back Okay, he may have bought himself back into mercy, true. But uh, somehow they must have agreed again, and then okay, we're going to use this this to finance whatever it is we're we're doing here. Do you understand what I mean? That it, yeah, it was this big. Then it sounds like it's more like a, a kind of a warring faction going on, disagreement within the people in the know. That's my first intuitive interpretation of this. What do you think? And my friend Doc uh, brought up the idea of this being a multi-generational, and it is because you can see the connection from a Templar to a Knights Baronet to a Freemason in a lot of cases. But also old money and old blood sticking together, basically, and also blood money in cases where for instance, they don't know how this Earl Marshall died. They just know that he did die. He might have died. Al Strachan might have been his murderer yeah. uh, when he packed the castle and he wounded him and the guy died a few months later mm. or whatever. So all of that would have been going on at the highest levels. They would want to keep it from other people, but they would also want to keep it from the the average Joe out there that you know they wouldn't want all the peasants to know what kind of crazy stuff they were yeah. involved in yeah, yeah. they they want to keep that secret so anyway so uh the other thing that they're all involved in and this is going to be another big shocker but everybody thinks about the mayflower just a bunch of puritans got on a a boat and came over for uh for their uh protection well, uh, well, some of those boats had Rosicrucians on board under Calpius. Yeah, and alchemists, so, and yeah. But the whole the whole idea of the Plymouth Company was started way back in 1606. Mm. It was called the Plymouth Company, mm. and it was made up of knights and people, merchants and people like that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of died off. See, uh, one of the original explorers over there his name was bartholomew gosnold he actually was a relative of francis bacon his mother was a bacon and uh he led the first english expedition to new england and he actually named cape cod and martha's vineyard which those names have Mm. been around all all since 1602 Mm. but a lot of 
uh, there were a lot of missing colonies. Like they always talk about Roanoke and everything. Well, there were a lot of them. Mm. Uh, there were some in Maine that just, the people just disappeared, you know? So in 1606, they put together the Plymouth company and it was founded by James the first. And it consisted of knights, merchants, adventurers, and planters from the cities of Bristol, Exeter, and Plymouth. Mm. And its purpose was to establish settlements on the coast. Of, they give the 38 to 40 degree north latitude within 100 miles of the seaboard. So that's how it was set up. Well, the whole thing died off until 1620. And it, long, long, not months before, let's put it months before the people ever got on the Mayflower, probably before they even owned the Mayflower ship, mm-hmm. a petition was sent to King James to revive the Plymouth Company. And uh, it's it actually reads, whereas it is thought fit that a patent of incorporation be granted to the adventurers of the Northern Colony in Virginia, which is what they call New England, the Northern Colony, mm. to con- uh, blah, 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 blah. This new company is to be free of customs and subsidies for the like term of years, et cetera, et cetera, dated July 23rd, 1620. Well, guess who signed it? The very first person to sign this was Sir Francis Bacon. Wow. Yeah. And the third person to sign it was Thomas Howard, Uh in whose house Bacon died. Right. And on the council of New England, or the Plymouth at the time, was William Alexander and his son, William Alexander Jr., Mm. were on the council. So it wasn't until later that year when the Mayflower actually made it there, but the idea of it of the Plymouth Colony was already cast in stone. It was just we got to get some people there. Mm. What happened was they sent two ships. One of them had to turn around because of a leak, so only one ship made it. By time scurvy took its toll, and they had a few altercations with the Native Americans in the beginning. Mm. Their their uh, number of people got pared down pretty fast, and so they were. When the when ships were coming back and forth, they were telling King James, you know, there's a bunch of French right up in Newfoundland about three or four uh, days away who can come down here and annihilate us. Mm. We need a buffer. Mm. And there's more up in Quebec. Mm. So uh, James gave the area that is now Newfoundland to, uh, not Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, mm. to William Alexander. And on September 10th of 1621, he signed a grant in the favor of Alexander for for the lands quote between our colonies of New England and Newfoundland to be known as New Scotland. Well, in, it was all written in Latin, of course. Ah, that's how how it got the name Nova Scotia. Yep, huh. at Nova Scotia. So here, Alexander's got all this land. He sends a boat over in six in twenty two sixteen twenty two, and it doesn't make it there because of storms. So he sends another one over in twenty. Well, later in twenty two is when. Al Strachan steals the money. And then in 23, he sends a ship that does make it there. Now, he's not, this is a very critical year because he's not listed as being on that boat. And he wrote a book about the trip and he doesn't say that he was on the boat. But the Alexander family and these few Mi'kmaq that spoke with Joan Hope that used to own the new Ross property there. And they were friendly with the Mi'kmaq, right? They both told, they both say in their traditions mm-hmm. that that was Alexander's estate. And he said, he made this statement, 
I don't remember, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't remember anything as fondly as I do America. Mm. Well, you can't remember something unless you've been there. Yeah, yeah, of course. The only year he could have been there was, he wrote that in 1624. Mm. So the only year he could have been there was 1623, because that's when the first boat got there. Mm. And also the king, King Charles, uh, mentioned a place in America known as Nova Scotia that was uh, uh, explored and surveyed by Sir William Alexander. So both the, both King Charles and um, Alexander themselves are leaving clues that they were there. Mm. Because how else could you explain either one of their statements mm. made just a couple of years apart? Mm. So I and then the other the the third reason is that in all the other descriptions of the boats and stuff, they're very skeletal descriptions. But in this case, his book that he wrote in 1624 goes into extreme detail about like the flora and fauna mm. and the smells of different places and minute descriptions. And it's hard for me to believe that some big old burly seaman, you know, sailor went over there and wrote all this flowery language when <laughs> the guy that owned the place was a poet. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, so I think that he might have gone over there, but he didn't want everybody to know about it yet because see the french were not going to give it up they weren't ready to give it up mm. yet and uh so everything they did had to be had to be kept secret and so i think that it was a secretive operation to basically create a utopian and you probably know about bacon's book the new atlantis yes. Atlantis, yes. which was particularly about creating a utopia that's right. And, and according to Amundsen's research, they replicated the Temple of Jerusalem. In uh, they, they refer to this as New Jerusalem. This is, of course, Templar lore. Yeah. And Alexander, in his own book of 1624, he first published it then, and then he revised it and published it again in, in uh, 1630. But, uh, and probably just because there was better printing by 1630, you know, things were starting to get yeah. printed in better ways. But regardless, um, he wrote specifically that his goal was to create to create a utopia. Mm. And, uh, go on. Go ahead. No, no, go on. Just the fact that both Bacon and Alexander specifically wrote about a utopia outside of the old world. Yeah. And the way Alexander said was to escape the uh, the problems of our of our old world, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he just came right out and said it. Here's your chance. Mm. Buy a knighthood. You can get out of the country and you, you can have quite a bit of land, th tens of thousands of acres of land. You can create your own community, you know, do whatever you want. And uh, so, but the, but the other little note there is that this guy, he was a Frenchman named Villanon, and he's the one that took Mary, Queen of Scots from Scotland helped her escape down to uh, France and he had to do a lot of trickery to beat the English who were waiting mm -hmm. for and uh, he had also written that he wanted a secret hideaway in the New World and he was an inspiration for Alexander who actually writes about him mm. and the fourth person in this little conglomerate was Thomas Howard who had in his official pretty much official biography 
it says that he wanted uh he was fond of finding an island that was uh surrounded by water where he could he wouldn't be bothered by everybody so you have uh three men that were specifically involved with my theory all wanting to create a utopia in america and all yeah right? yeah and 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 in the prospero uh, they describe uh, what peter amundsen believes is oak island where they say uh, a treasure is buried but uh, do you think there's any chance that bacon could have joined uh, because there's no known uh, I don't think it's known uh, that Bacon has been in the New World ever, although he owned lands there. And according to Amundsen's theory, uh, I mean, B- Bacon may have been a post-mortem via Bushel because we know Bushel went, uh, Bushel was a minor expert. Oh. And he, he went on several trips in the 20s. He was probably associated. I don't know if you've seen association between Alexander and Bushel, but he had, he Bushel wrote in his memoirs that he had be, completed his master's, that's Bacon, uh, dream or vision. And he spent several years there with some kind of project in Nova Scotia. Uh, so it seems very much that he must have been involved in the in the mining operations. But I'm wondering this trip in 23 or whenever it was when Alexander went there. Do you think have have you seen anything that could suggest Bacon went to? Well, not specific, but William Alexander's good friend William Vaughn, who I tracked all the way down to Anthony Vaughn and the Money Pit. Mm. He went to see his property in Newfoundland. And this Villanon guy went to see his property. And you would think that somebody that owned a bunch of property would want to go see it. because by At the, least visited once. Yes. By then, they knew that it was relatively safe to sail over there. It wasn't like this big mystery anymore of whether you could sail over there. And they pretty much knew how, much, how long it took. A lot of it depended on the, the winds, of course, and the weather. But they had a relatively good idea of of it and uh so if i can't believe that alexander would sit at home because i mean he was no shrinking violet by any stretch the things he did in his life mm. uh, he actually went to see the pope twice he never got to see him but he got to see his uh, uh you know his representative rep- but um he was no shrinking violet in traveling and if you just got a chunk of land that's as big as your home country mm. And you're completely in charge of it, you know, if it was me. And you have an envision for that place on top of it. Right, right. True. Then you would go. You would somehow go and you would go secretly so the French wouldn't know it and bomb your ship. Ah, then the same would be true for Bacon. They would have to go there undercover, Subrosa. But I'm thinking. And also, Thomas Howard, my target date is 1632. And in 1632, Thomas Howard disappears on a trip that they have never found the destination or there was no duration given. He left in uh, spring and he didn't get back till the fall. And to this day, nobody knows where he went, but he had land over there too. And so it's likely that he wanted to get in on the game too. I got property over there. I want to go see it. Cause my God, if I was, if I was sitting on 30,000 acres or in, in the, uh, Alexander's case, hundreds of thousands of acres. There wouldn't be a whole lot that would keep me from going over and see. No. Plus, if if poor Bacon died in his house, uh, he would feel some kind of obligation to fulfill uh, the vision that Bacon had. Uh, they had. Sure. Uh, so, if Bacon's body actually, which of course is a hypothesis, was buried over there, 
then uh, I would think he would be involved uh, in 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 doing that. It's it just because it, the dots end with him, right? <laughs> and then B- B- Bacon is buried over there. Well, that tells me it's a huge chance that Howard himself went and didn't just commission it to. But have you seen any connections between Howard, William Alexander, uh, and Thomas Bushell? No. And can you spell that last name for me? I'll look into it. Yeah, so Bushell, Bushell is B-U-S-H-E-L-L. He was Bacon's right hand. Okay. Uh, and he was a mining expert. So um, if you look, if you watch um, Peter Amundsen's, uh, I'll send you the links. He has two movies and four television episodes from the Norwegian state broadcast. So it's pretty... I mean, his books go into more details, but there will be some aspects of his. I mean, you can probably just ignore all the Shakespeare stuff, but the, his um, clues about what's going on in the new world has to converge with your detailed work. Yeah. So uh, once you're made aware of certain characters, right, then that's when you will notice them when they pop up. So, Well, and, and two points to be made here about a, a secret conspiracy. Yeah is uh, there was a letter written these letters still exist in the letters of King James and it was January 23rd 1624 and it was a letter from the Secretary of State Edward Conway to the treasurer to provide money for Sir William Alexander who is to be employed in the king's special service Mm. which typically means military Mm. intelligence you know and then on uh, just the next month, February 4th, 1624, William Alexander wrote to this Conway guy, and it says, it's describing the letter, it says, quote, fears the Lord Treasurer's delay in his dispatch, which means giving me my money, mm-hmm. will sacrifice substance to form and discover or reveal the business. Suggest that Burlamachi, who was a financier of the king, might furnish him privately and quietly with money by selling some iron ordnance, which he is allowed to transport. Fears the business is too much divulged, but hopes it may be managed so as to avoid disgrace should it fail. Mm. So these are actual letters that still exist that are talking about a secret a secret project and about William Alexander's only uh, his own fears that is going to be found out or that it's going to fail because it is found out. Mm. But the other conspiracy thing that's interesting, and I'm not like a super big conspiracy theory, but I know that or theorists, but I know that people make plans, secret plans together. There isn't any doubt about that. Mm. And right after there was a big battle to get Anthony Alexander to be the master of works. And that's why he joined. That's the reason they say that he joined the Freemasons was because uh, Williamson Clare was complaining that Alexander Will, uh, Anthony had no building experience. Mm. He had studied, but he had no building experience. Well, so St. Clair was already a member then. Well, he was the patron of the stonemasons, yeah, yeah. and they'd been patrons of the stonemasons for a long time. And that was his side of the argument. Hey, we've been patrons of these stonemasons for a long, long time, and now you're bringing in a total stranger that has no skills. This is the beginning of the speculative masonry. Right. Uh, well, yeah, just before it, mm. just years before it. And uh, so right after there's a in, this gigantic political intrigue going on, uh, they're paying off people to not seal a document. And it's just craziness. And right after 
Anthony gets the title confirmed to him 100%, he dies within a few days. Now, if he was sick, the king was never going to spend all this time fighting William Sinclair over putting him in there. So he couldn't have been sick during the battle to get him in. Mm. He, I suppose, could have got the plague and died in a couple of days. I don't know. But that started a bunch of Alexander's boys and their in-laws and their wives dying just one after another. Wow, and wow. But the tricky part of this is that the Alexander family says for sure that the son John went over there in 1641 back to New Ross until he was kicked out by Cromwell's people. Hmm. But they also say that William Alexander Jr., the first world's first Freemason, didn't die in in Scotland like they usually say he does, hmm. but that he actually went back, formed a Freemason's Lodge in 1638, and he died that year in 1638 over there. And after William the father died, the story was that the bodies of William Jr. and Anthony were both because William died the very within about seven months. William Jr. died about seven months after his brother, mm. and and Al Strachan died. And the father died when uh, in in 1640. He was the one the longest liver of wow, them all. He outlived them, but. The story was that they exhumed the bodies of William Jr. and Anthony and buried them with their father at the burial plot at uh, his castle called Minstry Castle. Mm. Well, a hundred years down the road, some workmen are working and accidentally dig up the grave, and there's only one body in the grave. Mm. So the story that the two sons were buried there wasn't true. Mm. And nobody had any explanation for why it wasn't true, but one explanation for it all could be that a whole slew of these people just picked up and went to Nova Scotia yeah. because not only was Alexander's fortunes waning, but also this whole uh, civil war between it started in Scotland and it went to Ireland and it went to England yeah. was starting up and it ended up with King Charles being beheaded. Yeah. So it was serious business. Yeah. And they actually arrested uh, one of Alexander's relatives, uh, David Alexander. He was a, uh, ship's captain and he'd been involved in a bunch of stuff Cromwell had him arrested he had uh, uh, William Alexander's son-in-law uh, I think his name was Robert Monroe had him arrested and thrown in the Tower of London for three years no no no, no. if you were yeah he, if you were a, a mason or a, a, a Templar in this area at this time you would obviously be better off in the new world than getting the, the Cromwell breath yes, upon you yeah, you're right you're absolutely yeah, that, that, that's other, probably also, by then, look, if they had established not just lands, but even secret projects, maybe moved over treasure and uh, even established their orders there and created what symbolically should be the new Atlantis, the new Jerusalem, why would they linger on risking their heads rolling when all this was waiting for them at the other side? And the, right, no wonder they wanted even the dead bodies over there to inaugurate, you know, to get the karma, get the blessing, get the, you know, it's a symbolic act, right? Our founders, well, whether it be Alexander or Bacon or whoever else was in the know here, it's absolutely true. Let's bring them over. It, and in the early days yeah. of building big buildings and cathedrals and stuff, yeah, that bodies were buried as a foundation stone thing, a, right? It, uh, yeah, mm. to have a blessing. Mm. 
And then they kind of, after a lot of people got upset about it, then they started using animals instead. But right. that, but that's a known fact that they uh, buried people. But the other thing that was happening on a big scale was that once the Catholic influence in England and Scotland died off, so did building the big cathedrals. And mm. the big cathedrals were the money ticket for the Freemason for the stonemasons. They were the only people that knew how to do it. They weren't about to tell anybody how to do it. And, uh, uh, once that started dying off, like if you look at Glasgow, as opposed to Edinburgh, Glasgow is a very cut stone townhouse type buildings. You know, they're not, they're not like super decorative, like no. Edinburgh mm. Edinburgh's like every, every, Every turn you make in the middle yeah, of Edinburgh, yeah. you're looking at an architectural yeah. wonder, you know. So, which is why the huge fire in our recent history was such a tragedy. Yeah, and so it may have been in the Freemasons' mind. It may have been, yeah, we we have to find another path here because our path, our path of basically building for originally they built tons of buildings for the Knights Templar. Uh, the, they were associated with the Templars in that very pragmatic way for a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the gravy train was going to die out because there just wasn't the need for, you know, extreme craftsmanship and everything. Now you could get mm. people with lesser skills just to cut square blocks and build a building out of them. So they might have looked at it, at this, too, is that, yeah, we need a new utopia, too, because things are drying Yeah. And these guys have... Yeah, yeah, because, uh, look, uh, Templars, if if there was anything they knew, it was architecture. And uh, Masons, there were probably a lot of stone actual Masons involved because, you know, the overlapping from operative to speculative Masons. It wasn't like a new organization suddenly came up. Uh, it must have been gradual. They started to let in philosophers and um, it must have been with the blessing. It was incorporation with the already Masons because the already Masons, it was a very short, you know, okay, we have a trade union or whatever you call it, a craft union here. Yeah. But, right. you know, the grand architect is, you know, the, we, we already have uh, terminology and insights, which historically, by the way, was tightly connected to the Templars when they were building the huge cathedrals and, and buildings in Europe, right? So we already have a lore which is very closely related between this craft and this spirituality. And now we're starting to like create a, a philosophical aspect of that. So so obviously that was they didn't like seize those organizations and force it upon them. It was done in cooperation with them. So yeah you would have a natural uh, overlapping period where many Masons were actual Masons too. So this makes complete sense. And I'll tell you two other quick stories here that, that will probably blow your mind is that in 1618, King James sent a group to Edinburgh on what was described as an or architectural mission. Mm -hmm. And that group was Sir Francis Bacon, Thomas Howard, William Herbert, who was the uh, Earl of Pembroke, but he had he eventually became uh, Grand Master of the Stonemasons, as did Thomas Howard mm. and the famous Inigo Jones. Mm. And in 1618, Mary's Chapel was purchased for the first permanent 
Stonemason's Lodge. Mm-hmm. And they held their first meeting there on November 25th of 1618. So my putting two, to two, two and two together here is that they went up there at the behest of James I to find a place where the, the, the Masons could meet in a more formal, specific place, you know. Mm-hmm. And Mary's Chapel had sat empty since the Reformation because it was built as a Catholic chapel, actually by the McDonald's, my McDonald family. And by the way, the Alexanders were McDonald's too. He signed his name, William Alexander McDonald, a number of times. Mm. But they had, just like we took McQuiston out of the McDonald clan, they took Alexander out of the McDonald clan. Mm. And uh, so it was uh, when the last big chief of the McDonald's died, uh, that the King James of Scotland at the time, it was Mary Queen Scott's father, gave this land in Edinburgh to his widow, and she built Mary's chapel there for the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's what it was built for. Well, by the time the Reformation came on, that all fell apart, and the thing was just used for secular uses until it was purchased uh, for the stonemasons. So my theory in that is that they were sent up there to find a place for the stonemasons to meet, Mm. and they bought Mary's Chapel because it was right in the shadows of Edinburgh Castle. I mean, it's and it was the next road over from the Blackfriar Blackfriars where they had a place. And this is a little side thing, but underneath those areas now, the Mary's Chapel's been torn down by now. They put use that area to make a bridge, but Mm. underneath that area are tunnels, Mm -hmm. and they. They're big in the uh, ghost tours of Edinburgh, right? But they don't know who built them. They don't know how ah. old they are. But they're just. Like, I mean, all know tunnels are deep into tunnels. <laughs> yep, it's they're exactly. You look at them, and I, I, my wife went over to Jordan. I didn't go on that trip, but we've been on a lot of trips to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But I didn't go on that because it was too hot for me. Mm-hmm. But she, when she saw the pictures of the tunnels underneath, right there, she. Is exactly like the tunnels under the Templar castle that they went to in Jordan. She said it's the same thing. Yeah. You wouldn't know which tunnel you were in. No, there's two trademarks for their um, worshiping. One is with the round churches, and the other is um, is tunnels. Yes, and this this links back to the old days. By the way, it, it's um, dragging on here in terms of bodily uh, needs. Should we take a, a, a little break? Okay. Just fill up our mugs and empty our bladders and then continue. Because I, I still have, uh, there's loose threads. We can't, we can't stop yet. There's loose threads. We have to nest up. Yes. So are you game for that? Do you have the energy to go on for at least another hour? Sure. That's so great. I love this. Yeah, time. me too. <laughs> Brothers. This will be yeah. uh, my long. I did about three three-hour podcast or video casts, but uh, oh, you did. This is probably going to go past that. So yeah, I think we'll, we'll try to make a record uh, in comparing to that. But uh, let's take five okay, and uh, reconvene in in five minutes. Okay. See you shortly. Great. All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show. You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paper link on our webpage. Thanks.